0: Good morning, family, church. Thank you for joining us here on Palm Sunday. We are here to celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We know that within the week of Him entering into Jerusalem, He would be put to death by crucifixion for your sins and for mine. We're going to look at leading up to that event. We're going to find some psalms in that. We're continuing in our series this morning in the book of Psalms. And we're going to come about Not just one psalm this morning, but actually looking at two psalms, and we're going to get to those psalms a little unconventionally this morning. We're actually going to begin in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to discover one psalm and take a look at that, and then we're also going to find another psalm by historically looking at what was taking place in Jerusalem at that time. So go ahead and begin in Matthew chapter 21. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And while you're turning there, I want to give some background information about what was happening in Jerusalem at that time before we read this text. I've mentioned this information probably about a year ago. I'm sure all of you remember the information, Um, but just just in case any of you are new, I'm going to go back and touch on what was happening in Jerusalem at that time. So I have a couple of pictures that I wanted to share. The first one is of the temple that is kind of reconstructed. This is what the temple would have looked like at the time of Matthew chapter 21. And so this courtyard here would have been full of thousands and thousands of Jews. Actually, at the same time, they would have been bringing in thousands and thousands of lambs that were going to be sacrificed for Passover. The same time Jesus was going to be entering in, He would have been walking amongst everyone bringing in sacrificial lambs, and he is the sacrificial lamb. Jerusalem, during this time, went from around 40,000 to 200,000. Everyone who was a Jew was supposed to go here to celebrate Passover. So the city was increasing from 40,000 to 200,000. Just like Markle Island, right? (laughs) Especially when you go to the grocery store. So it was expected that every Jew would attend Passover in Jerusalem. If we can go to the next picture. Now, we just saw this. This was the temple here. We're looking at the west side now of Jerusalem. What also happened during this time is as the city was growing in population, then the Roman soldiers would come from the west, Pontius Pilate and the governors, they had their home over on the other coast by the sea, and they would march hours to go to the west entrance And so here's the west entrance where they would march. And you see Israel right here. They would go from the sea and they'd go over to Jerusalem. They'd march in the west gate and they had a fortress built right inside the city walls. Now, why was it so important that the Roman soldiers march in full battle gear with swords drawn, ready for battle? That's how they marched in Jerusalem. Well, why was that so important? Well, what was being celebrated during this time? Passover, right? And what were the Jews celebrating with Passover? Anyone help me out? The Exodus. The Exodus from where? Egypt. And Egypt was being good rulers over them or bad rulers? So they're actually celebrating over Passover a foreign oppression that the Lord gave them liberation from. And so the city is going from 40,000 to 200,000 people excited about the Lord Liberating them from foreign oppression, and they still have to pay taxes to Caesar. And they still are being oppressed by a foreign government once again. So it set the stage for a really bad scene, potentially. There could be a revolt because they were in a fortified city, and there's now 200,000 Jewish people celebrating liberation. So it'd be very easy for a rebellion to start. So they were putting troops on the ground just in case, to show them you don't want this battle to start. That's what was happening on the west side of Jerusalem. So it's vital for us to understand some of those things. So the stage is set. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humbled and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed him. They brought the donkey and the colt, put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. We're going to stop in verse 7, and I want to go to another picture and show what just happened in the verses that we read. So this is the Roman guard on the west side of the city. Bethany is over here on the right. It says Jesus started in Bethany. He went to Bethphage, which is the next town, and this is the Mount of Olives. And he would be descending down this mount to Jerusalem. And it says that he stopped in Bethphage, and there was a small town in front. He sent his disciples to go get the donkey and the colt. And then he rode on them down the mountain. He's going to go through the Garden of Gethsemane, which is right here, right outside the temple, where just in a few days he would be sweating tears and drops of blood on our behalf to take the wrath of God for us. He went through that place and still entered into the temple. Now, he's going to be entering into the east gate. The east gate is called the golden gate. It's still there today. It's been sealed up. I preached on that a couple of months ago. But he would have been entering in the gate, and right when he entered in, he would have seen the temple in all of its glory. He would have seen all the things going on, the thousands of people. And what this meant, and everybody knew it, is how Jesus entered into the temple On Palm Sunday, which just would have been the beginning of Passover, how he entered into the temple was going to signify if he, in fact, was saying he was the Messiah or not. And everybody knew it. Either he was going to announce he was or he wasn't. So everyone was looking for it. It's kind of like the presidential race. People are throwing in their hat. If they're going to be a next presidential candidate right now, this is exactly like what they were looking for So let's begin in verse 8 as we continue on. So he's riding into town, verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, and they followed him, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Now up to this point, Jesus, before he entered into Jerusalem, had not allowed people to publicly proclaim him the Messiah. He never said he was. And he, anytime anyone understood that or recognized it, he said, You could, you could not have known this unless the Spirit had given you this information, and then he told him to keep quiet. He did his ministry outside of Jerusalem, so he never allowed public acknowledgement of his being the Messiah. But this day, he came into the city, and people went before him, alongside of him, and after him. They laid down their cloaks in front of him. He rode in on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah 62.11. It says the Crowds spread their cloaks down on the road. This was in reference to Old Testament prophecy coming true in Second Kings 9.13. This was done for kings. You laid your garments down before kings to walk over. So they're publicly saying, he's a king. How do you think that would have went over with the Romans in the city? You couldn't worship other kings. It would have been blasphemous. It would have been a death sentence. But you see this crowd calling him a king. That's what it says in Luke. In Mark, it goes on to say, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the kingdom. So you see in Mark, he's saying that he's bringing a kingdom with him. Luke says he was a king. So you have all these things. They're waving palm branches. Palm branches represented victory, like a battle of victorious nature. And they're waving these things. I want us to look back at verse 9 because it brings us to our first twisted psalm this morning. I've entitled my message, A Twist of Two Psalms. It says this Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. If you have cross references in your Bible, if you look beside that verse, it's probably referencing Psalms 118, verses 25 and 26. That's where they got that from. So I want us to turn to Psalms 118, verse 25 and 26 this morning. Psalms 118. Beginning in verse 25, they're crying, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means exactly what we read in verse 25 of Psalms 118. It starts out like this Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So, why do I say this psalm is twisted? I mean, Psalms 118 is absolutely true. Right, church? It's the Word of God. It's true. It's accurate. It's right. It's purposeful. It's useful. So why do I say they twisted it? Well, we're going to look at that. Was the crowd saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us? Yes, they were. Jesus allowed them to say these things. But we need to think, what were they meaning Because what they were saying was true, but what they were meaning was false. Well, how do we know what they meant? Well, we can take a look at that. Were they crying? It's a question to ask. Were they crying for the depths of their sins? Did they understand when Jesus was coming in? Were they crying, Lord, save us? We can't save ourselves. We've broken your commandments. Did they have repentance? Were they on their knees begging the Lord for forgiveness because they so had understood their need for a Savior? That they couldn't get away from their sin. Is that what they were crying? Lord, save us from. Hosanna, save us. Jesus knew these people were saying the right things. He allowed them to say these things about Him. But He knew that they had twisted the Scriptures. Well, how do we know that? In Luke 19, 41, you don't need to turn there. It just says this, When He, Jesus, drew near... And saw the city, this is on his approach, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus knew as he was going to be entering, people were going to proclaim him king. But he knew their hearts would be far from him. I want to come back to the crowd's response shortly. But there's another psalm that's hidden in this Palm Sunday story. In Jewish liturgy, Psalms 24. Psalms 24 was always used on the first day of the week. Well, the first day of the week is our Sunday. And this is the day Jesus was entering into the city. So they would have been quoting Psalm 24 as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. So let's turn to Psalm chapter 24. I preached on a couple of these verses, but I want to read. The full Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. As we read this Psalm, I want you to think through Jesus entering into Jerusalem and think that he's approaching the temple and they're saying this Psalm and listen to what they're saying. Listen to what the actual words of this are in reference to Christ coming into the city. Verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? Christ could have done that. Who has clean hands and a pure heart? We know only Christ had that. Who does not lift up His soul to what is false? Jesus Christ. Who does not swear deceitfully? Jesus Christ. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up ancient doors, that the King of glory may, May come in. And then it says it again. Who is the king of glory? We know the king of glory is Jesus Christ. They're saying who is he? Where is he? Show us who he is so we can open the doors of the temple and let him in. And Jesus is entering into the city. But the religious leaders who are quoting Psalm 24. Do they receive him as the king of glory? They do exactly what the crowd later does. Is they reject him. We know within a few days he would be crucified. So the crowd outside is saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. The religious leaders have twisted Psalms 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Both groups had Scripture. Both groups knew Scripture. Both groups quoted Scripture. But when they saw the Messiah, some praised him, some didn't. And before the end of the week, what happened? What happened to these two groups of people? There's a question I want us to answer this morning. Where does a twisted view of Scripture lead? It's one of the first points. I just encourage you to write that down. Where does a twisted view of Scripture lead? We can answer that question by looking at where it led the religious leaders. We can answer the question by looking where it led the crowd. Where did their twisted view of Psalms 118 lead them? Well, we know that in the end of the week, both would be crying, not Lord, save us, but they would be crying what? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Give us instead the traitor. Give us instead the criminal. Take Him away. And crucify him. What they were wanting from their view of scripture that they had twisted wasn't what Jesus came doing. And do we not see the same attitude in the church today? Do we not see the same attitude in American Christianity today? I mean we have account after account and testimony after testimony of people saying that they tried out this Christian thing. Right? They classify themselves as spiritual, atheistic, agnostic. They used to be a Christian. Even some of them saying, I used to be a pastor of a church. I used to be a born again. But now I'm not any longer. What happened? The same thing that happened with the crowd. The same thing that happened with the religious leaders. Many times, not every time, but many times it's the same thing. A quick survey for us. How many of you know someone who once identified themselves as a Christian that now does not? Raise your hand. Raise it up high. Said they were a Christian, now they don't. Most people know someone. What has happened? The crowd was doing it, the religious people doing it, people still doing it today. Many times it's because they're given a false view of what it means to be a Christian. They have a false representation of what it means to be a Christian is this. The crowd had that. They expected Jesus to not come riding in the city on a peaceful donkey, right? But to come in a warrior on a war horse. And so when that picture didn't line up, they just went a couple of days before they turned their back on him. The same with the religious leaders. They had their own view. And when it didn't line up with how they thought things should be, they turned their back on him. You know, maybe... In America, because this is largely an American problem, because in other cultures where Christians are being persecuted, they know what it means to follow Christ. In other countries where Christians are liable to get their heads chopped off for following Christ, they know the danger of following Jesus Christ and saying they're a believer. Because they understood what it meant from the front end. In Christianity today, many times in countries where things are well, people are sold what Christianity is, on some of the benefits of it, and they never understand some of the things that are hardships and trials of Christianity. This is what it looks like, church, when someone truly submits their obedience to Jesus Christ. They call Him their Savior. They call Him King. They bow down to Him. What it means for you and what it should mean for me and all of us is we understand That I am sinful, I am dreadful, I don't deserve the love of God because I've broken his commandments. But even in the midst of that, he had mercy and patience and grace, and he stepped down into my life. Scripture says, even when I was his enemy, he loved me and pursued me. Because of that, because of what he's done for me, I give him my life, I submit to him as Lord, as my Savior, as my authority. And nothing is going to change that for me. That's what it means to be a follower. I want to ask you, if you've submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your King, as your authority, can you ever take that authority back from Him? This is what it means to be a Christian. When you decide to follow Christ, you take that option off the table. It's off the table. I can never turn and say, I'm my authority again. Listen, whether you believe in God or you don't, He's still the authority. We as Christians are just choosing to submit to Him right now as the authority. We submit to Him now because He is worthy and holy and mighty and powerful. And we've seen glimpses of that. So we submit to that because He is good. But if somebody is saying they've submitted to Him and they were once a pastor... Or they were once a born again. And they're now telling you that they're not anymore? That means that they're saying they submitted to him as the authority. But later, how could they take that authority back? Listen, if you've made somebody your boss, and you can turn around and fire them, what does that mean? You never made them your boss, right? You always kept enough authority to say, you're not going the way I want you to go. And this is what Christianity Christianity is in so many people's lives. They just try to fit him in. That's never true submission to what Jesus is and what he's done. When you choose to follow Christ, it means giving up everything and following him. The crowd, we know, didn't give up everything. Because at the end of the week, what happened? They turned away. Even though they were saying the right things, even though they were bowing down before Him and doing the right things, even though they gave their cloak to get disgusting in the muddy street, even though they were risking their life for Jesus Christ, they weren't really followers of Him. They were followers of their own Jesus Christ, their own Messiah in their own mind. It's exactly what 1 John 2.19 tells us. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. This is speaking of the church. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Scripture says when somebody leaves a faith, it actually means that they were never in the faith. And them leaving the faith shows all of us they were never in the faith. It makes it plain to us. That's what 1 John 2.19 says. Now there are exceptions. The prodigal son story. People can leave the faith and still be in the faith and come back. But the problem is, in the church today, it seems we've made the prodigal son story the normal. Anytime someone's left the faith, they're always a believer. When Scripture says that's the exception, most of the time when somebody leaves the faith, it's because they were never in the faith. Because they said never, they never submitted to Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, as the authority in their life. A twisted view of Scripture always leads someone away from God, thus becoming their own authority. That's what a twisted view of Scripture is. Anytime you twist Scripture a little bit, it's anti-God. It can't be a little bit like God, right? Because you twist it a little minute amount. Now it's nothing like the original, and that's what it means. Terry last week spoke about the false Word of faith movement. Talked about a lady that he met in Target, right? A lady met in Target who had this verse that she believed that the Lord's going to give her the desires of her heart. And what was the desire of her heart, church? Anybody remember? Win win the lottery and have this beautiful home. And even to where she drew out a floor plan of this home and so focused that the Lord is going to give her the desires of her heart, and the desires of her heart are this home. I want to ask, church, what happens when she doesn't get the home? What happens to her and her relationship with the Lord when she doesn't get the thing that she's so fixated on that the Lord's going to give her? Well, I'll tell you what happens, because it's the same whether it be wealth or a home, or a healing, or whatever it is, we can put something there that people come to Christianity believing, if I get this, I'm going to follow it. And what typically happens is one of two things, and it's a plague in Christianity today. When she doesn't get that house, she's going to begin to doubt. And people are going to come alongside her, the people that maybe fed her that, and they're going to say, don't doubt the Lord. Don't doubt, you just need to have more faith. You just need to believe more in the promises of God. And and she's struggling with that because she's like, well, I'm believing already, and it's not coming true. And, And so she tries to believe harder. When Scripture says faith is a gift, it's not a work, so you can't produce faith. And she's trying to produce this faith, and faith is only... According to God's word, so it's not even faith because what she's believing is false, it's not in scripture. So she's trying to produce this thing that she can't produce, and it's this belief. And then pretty soon, she's gonna gonna get frustrated that it's not happening either she's not good enough or God is not good enough. And at the end of the day, the second thing happens she throws up her hands and she walks away and she says, This is all fake. Either I'm not good enough and the Lord's not listening to my prayers or secondly, the Lord doesn't exist and His Word is not true. It's the same result, whatever happens. And there's person after person who's sitting in the church all across America who has these beliefs and they're hanging on just for a time and it looks like they're doing all the right things. Just like the crowd. You look at the crowd and this is in your connect group questions this week. If you would have looked at the crowd. They would have been on their knees, crying out, Messiah, Hosanna, save us. They were doing all the right things. But they weren't even believers in Jesus Christ. They knew scripture. They were quoting scripture. They were giving up. They were willing to risk their life, but they weren't believers. So this should be a startling message for us sitting in the church. What do we have our hope fixed on? What are we trusting in? What if that thing we're trusting in never happens? What if the healing never comes? What if the home never comes? What if the riches never come? Where did we get these views? Colossians 2.8, this is exactly what she fell in. Colossians 2.8, listen carefully. See to it, church, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men. According to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, we fixate and focus on what Christ has told us, not the twisted view of man. Where did she find the promise of a new house in, in the Bible? Same place, probably where people find the promises of wealth, health, prosperity. I want to read a couple of verses, Luke 9:58. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus turned to them and said this, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's no mansion involved in that verse. The Lord's saying he doesn't even have a hole or a nest to lay down his head. Luke fourteen twenty-seven: Whoever does not carry his own cross and comes after me, cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10, You will be hated by all because of my name. Calling yourself a Christian. It says, You will be hated by all, but it is the one who endures till the end who will be saved. That's the concept known as perseverance of the saints. Those who endure till the end are those who are really in the faith. Scripture teaches that. Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Not great is your reward on earth. It says great is your reward in heaven. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be what? Persecuted. Very clear, very clear promises in Scripture. Luke fourteen thirty three. Therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, if you renounce everything but one thing, that means you're still the authority. And you can always take it back. What it means to follow Christ is you've given up everything because he is holy and worthy and mighty and loving and patient and graceful and you understand some of those sayings. It's not a false expectation. If people were given the type of information that Jesus gave them, the true information of what it means to follow Christ, most people would not say they were a Christian to begin with. They wouldn't choose to do that. So it's vitally important that we understand. Understanding Scripture and not false expectations that we place upon that. The sad thing is is that that lady with that home, she was never trusting in God to begin with. But the end result is she rejects Him. So she never tried Him out. She never got the real deal. She never understood the promises. She never even got to experience what being a believer is. But the end result is that her misfortune of trying something fake throws away the genuine. It throws away the goodness. I've given some scriptures, maybe you're thinking, why would I want to be a believer after those verses? You know, it'd be, it'd be easier to not be a believer if I want to be persecuted and have to renounce all of these things. Listen, church, the Bible gives us some incredible, incredible promises. Life-altering, soul-saving, eternal, powerful, loving promises. Promises that I would never trade for riches. Promises I would never trade for a new home or even my safety here on this earth. Because when you taste of the Lord and His goodness and His love and His mercy, and you understand the depravity of yourself and that you've broken God's law, you're deserving of hell because of how sinful you are. But God, that's not where it ends, but God loved you enough to pursue you, to die for you, to take God's wrath for you. When you get glimpses of that and you take hold of that, it changes everything. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. You take the option off the table that I'm ever going to forsake him because I have nothing to give but everything he's given me. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 26 says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. We need to understand the stakes are high. Maybe you're here this morning, you were invited by a friend, this is your first time. Maybe you've never heard the gospel preached this way. Maybe you've never heard Jesus Christ preached this way. Most of us grew up in church and we heard things that don't sound like this. Listen, I just want to give you one verse. Maybe you're, you're not even sure if you're a believer. Scripture makes it very clear that it's simple and easy to follow after Christ. John 1.12, But to all who did receive Him who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's what Scripture says. But to all who did receive Him who believed in His name, Jesus Christ, He gave the right to become children of God. Of God. If you're here this morning, you're not even sure if you are a believer, or maybe you've bought in to a false concept of Christianity. I encourage you to bow the knee of your heart in the quietness between you and the Lord here shortly, and just cry out and say, "Lord, I want You to come into my life. Save me. Thank You for what You've done for me. Help me to live for You." That's what it means to become a follower of Him. For those of you that are believers, maybe you've been a believer for quite some time. I encourage you. I think all of us probably have some twisted views of Scripture from our upbringing, from the culture, things we're just inundated with, maybe even our conversion experience. There's some things that we believe that are not exactly lined up with what Scripture says. I encourage you, take time, pursue, dig into the Word. As you dig into the Word, you get to know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, more intimately more personally. When you know Him more personally, it changes things in your life. I don't read God's Word to change my life. I don't do these things for a benefit to me. I do it because I love Him and I want to serve Him. That's the result. Don't pursue Him for the result. We do these things because He's worthy of it. Church, this is why sound doctrine matters. This is why preaching the whole counsel of Word Matters. This is why we look to God's word as our only source of truth in all things. Church, would you stand this morning? I want to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's kind of a charge to the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by the spoken word or by our letter. Scripture saying, sound preaching and the word of God are the only things you should hold fast to. So stand firm in those things. Verse 16 Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal. Comfort, there's another promise. And good hope, another promise. Through grace, another promise. Comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we give you praise for your promises. God, we thank you that your promises are not shallow, that are earthly things that are going to pass away, where moth and rust and thieves can break in and steal, where the rust destroys. God, we thank you your promises are eternal. They're everlasting promises. They're internal promises and they're eternal promises. God, we give you praise that you are worthy. That we can trust in you. God, I pray that we may stop giving a false expectation of what it means to be a Christian. Because people come and they act, they're thinking, they're trusting in you when they're not. And at the end of the day, it just means they have a hardened heart more towards you. And they, they leave thinking they've tried out this Christian thing when we know they really haven't. God, help change our hearts. Because there are ways and there are areas in our own hearts where we may have a twisted view of Scripture. Maybe there's something that, that we're thinking you should be doing. When you've never promised that. God, help change us, mold us to the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you still entered into Jerusalem, knowing that you would be put on a cross, and you did it for the glory of God. And as a result, we benefit from that. We have our sins forgiven because we've called out upon your name. We've trusted in the sacrifice you've made. God, we thank you that you have taken our sins, and you've made them as far as the east is from the west. God, because of you, we can have reconciliation with God. God, we love you. We praise you. I pray for each and every single person who is here that you may continue to grow us. God, we thank you for justifying us, but Lord, help us grow closer towards you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.